Well then, with a view to the blessing of God, let's turn for our text to the uh, same passage we were looking at in the morning, in the letter to the Hebrews and chapter 11. In the Church Bible, that's on page 1845. 1845. The chapter highlights uh, acts of faith on the part of men and women of God. And... um, In one portion, he highlights the faith both of Jacob and his son, Joseph. And although there were many examples of faith in both their lives, he focuses on their death and something they did and said at their death. So in verse 21, Hebrews 11, verse 21, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, that's Ephraim and Manasseh, and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. And now, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure or the exodus of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Joseph, when he was dying, gave instructions or commandments regarding his bones. Now, as we saw in the morning, these closing chapters are dominated. The closing chapters of Genesis, that is, where we had our readings, they're dominated by two deaths and two funerals. The deaths and the funerals of a father and his son. And you'll remember that Both of them, uh, Jacob and Joseph, extracted oaths from their families, very solemn oaths, to make sure that they would both be buried in the promised land, even though they had died hundreds of miles away in the land of Egypt. So Jacob's body was to be carried back and buried there, and in good time, Joseph's body was to be carried back and buried there too. And we saw that for both these men, this request and the oath that they extracted was a kind of statement of faith on their part. It wasn't just a desire to be home where they had been born and grew up, but it was a statement to the effect that although they had been living in Egypt and Though they had died in Egypt, they didn't belong to Egypt at all. In a sense, they wished to renounce Egypt, at least its uh, principles and its lifestyle. And they were asserting very powerfully uh, what every Christian asserts at the Lord's table and everywhere else, that they are strangers and pilgrims here in this world. Strangers because we don't belong, pilgrims because we are passing through. We are sojourning. So at heart, they belong to the promised land. And they would demonstrate that in the way that they lived in Egypt, in their life and in their conduct. Now they would dress like Egyptians. They would meet the Egyptians and speak with them. But still they maintained their godly existence in life and in conduct. So here is a statement essentially to the fact that they are heirs of the promised land. They believe that that tract of land, which we refer to these days as the Holy Land, was actually a land which God had blessed and that God was using as a kind of um, prototype of the world which he would bless, a land flowing with milk and honey. And although at this point in time they don't actually own any of it, Abraham didn't own any of it, they didn't own any of it except a burial plot, that's all they had. Interestingly enough, that's all they had. It seems quite staggering to think that the only piece of real estate this family actually owned in Canaan was a single burial plot, 
which the people were happy to give Abraham, but Abraham actually insisted on buying it. And they owned it, a place for the dead. And that, in a way, was there again a statement of faith that they were content to possess this uh, when God would give it to them, especially in the resurrection, when the whole world would become a land flowing with milk and honey. So for them, it was spiritual blessings that really mattered. They were, in effect, renouncing Egypt and identifying with Canaan. I'll say more about that a little later on. Now, we saw in the morning how this affected Jacob on his deathbed. Um, He was tested himself on his deathbed when he had a duty to bless his sons and to bless the grandsons, the sons of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. He exercised faith when he blessed them, and he did so as he worshipped and as he leant upon his staff. That staff was a reminder to him of God's power, God's kindness, and God's grace. On the flip side, a reminder to himself of his weakness and his undeservedness. Now I want to turn with you to consider Joseph for a while, because we're told that when he was dying, he extracted the same kind of oath, more or less, but with a significant difference. He gave a commandment concerning his bones. He too wanted his bones taken back to the land of promise. Now I mentioned in the morning that, naturally speaking, Jacob didn't have all that much reason to remember the land of promise with affection because of the difficulties that he had there. And sometimes these difficulties can overshadow your blessings. Now, if that's true of uh, Jacob, then it was much more so the case in connection with his son Joseph, because there's no doubt that the promised land for him was a land of affliction and a land of difficulty. Uh, He left it when he was around 17 years of age. And I think you could say in a way that these 17 years were really, really difficult years. His mother, Rachel, died when he was very, very young, giving birth to Benjamin, something we saw recently at the prayer meeting. Uh, From that point in time, uh, he and his brother Benjamin were the objects of serious hostility uh, from his brothers-in-law, sorry, from his half-brothers in the family. And there's no doubt that uh, his father would try uh, to protect him But the brothers' jealousy and their hatred was extremely serious. I think they, on their part, would recognize that their mother, Leah, was perhaps less favored in the household than uh, Joseph and Benjamin's mother, Rachel. Perhaps that may have been one reason for the animosity. These things are reminders to us that although the tendency to take more than one wife was in the culture, It ought never to have come in uh, to the people of God. And every time you read of it in Scripture, uh, it always brings disaster, difficulty, chaos into the households of God's people. And I'm quite sure that these half-brothers, the sons of Leah, were afraid that the inheritance and the wealth that Jacob had, which was really not just considerable, but vast. I'm sure they were afraid that it would fall to Joseph and to Benjamin. And of course, when um, the famous coat of of, uh, many colors uh, was given to Joseph, that would be another sign to them that the inheritance was not theirs, that the inheritance would belong to Joseph. But of course, deep down, there was a a more fundamental reason for their opposition, and you know what that was. It's because of the fact that Joseph was a child of God. He he was a believer. He was not of the world. They were sadly of the world. And as our Lord Jesus Christ tells us as Christians, we are not to marvel if the world hates us. Christ said, the world hated me before it hated you. 
Therefore, marvel not if the world hates you. And when you become a Christian, you will notice the world's opposition in different ways. Sometimes intense, sometimes not so intense. That may depend on how far it itself has rebelled against God, or it may depend on how closely you yourself walk with God. But one way or another, and to one degree or another, you will discover that the spirit that animates the world is not the spirit that animates you. And his brothers hated him. Remarkably, on his own part, Joseph loved his own brothers, and he was full of kindness towards them. But they still just hated him in return. And when Joseph shared with them, of course, the dreams that he had received, dreams that God was somehow going to use him and to exalt him in a way that would lead his family to acknowledge him and to thank him and to bless him, well, that just inflamed their hatred. We're told in the book of the Genesis that they hated him all the more for his dreams. And even though his father rebuked him for telling the dreams, Deep down, his father suspected that they were not the product of his own imagination, but that they were the word of God. We're told that his father laid these things to heart. Like Mary, many years later, uh, she laid what she had heard and seen on her heart. That meant that she kept it there and she watched the word of God. She observed the word of God. Like a hen brooding over her chicks, she observed the word, how it would be fulfilled in time and in providence. So did Jacob, rebuked him, but watched and waited. And so indeed he should. But the bullying increased. And of course, most of you will be familiar with the fact that around 17 years of age, uh, Joseph's brothers were going to kill him, but instead of killing him, they sold him to slave traders bound for Egypt on the caravan route from the east down towards Egypt, and they sold him famously for 30 pieces of silver, like a greater than Joseph, just the price of a slave. They were happy enough to get it, and that was that, and as far as they were concerned, he was out of sight, and he was out of mind. Now, after a brief time of blessing in Egypt, where mysteriously, in God's providence, he's bought uh, by a very powerful person uh, called the Potiphar. I say the Potiphar because archaeology has, I think, now made plain that Potiphar is a, a title rather than a name, a high steward in uh, Pharaoh's household. He, he actually becomes a slave and he's quickly promoted in that household. Sadly, the devil comes in. He is falsely accused of trying to um, lie with uh, Potiphar's wife. It ends up that he is put into prison. But again, in God's mysterious providence, he is taken out of there quickly. Pharaoh recognizes his worth and that the accusations were false, and he ends up being placed in charge of the whole Egyptian economy. Uh, 20% of the produce was taken into Pharaoh's household and Pharaoh promotes Joseph to the place where he is essentially next to him in power. And of course he becomes the means of being a blessing to his brothers who come down to Egypt looking for grain and eventually the whole of the family comes down to Egypt too. And when Jacob dies, Joseph is in his 40s. He is married and he is as well off in Egypt as was possible to be. And in a way, you would have expected him to have forgotten the promised land. And there's a way in which if you, if you notice the names that he's given to his sons, that seems to confirm that he's forgotten the promised land. After all, when the first child is born, he calls him Manasseh, which means to cause, to forget. And he calls him Manasseh because he says, God has made me forget my trouble 
and my father's house. God has made me to forget my trouble and my father's house. Now, if that sounds like a a closed book, if that sounds as though Jacob is looking back on the first 17 years of his life and said, done with that, finished with that, forgotten it, these were bad days, my father's house was a bad place to be, and I've forgotten that. Well, it's not meant to sound like that, because it doesn't really mean that at all. And I suppose in a way you could work that out, because if that's really what he meant, then why is he so keen to help his brothers when they come looking for food? Why does he break down at the thought of not being able, until it was God's time, to reveal himself to his brothers? Why does he care for them and love them so much if he has really forgotten his father's house? No He hasn't forgotten it in that sense. The meaning is that he's forgotten his trouble and his grief and his persecution. That's all. He is able, he has been able by the grace of God to forget what his brothers did, to forget the hardship and live as though it hadn't happened to him at all. And it's not easy to live without hard feelings. It's not easy to live without grudges. And it's not easy to live without bitterness when people really have done you wrong. It's one thing just to think people have done you wrong, to suspect that they might have done you wrong. But when you know that you've done, they've done you wrong and they've done you real wrong, I mean, there's bullying and there's bullying, but leaving, leaving you in a pit to die of hunger and thirst, which was the original intention, is an awful thing to contemplate. These are his half-brothers. To sell him for nothing into Egyptian slavery, that's real hatred and malice. But Joseph just forgets it. He puts it past him. And how does he put it past him? Well, in the same way that you're called to put it past you too. In the way that the Lord Jesus Christ himself put it past him. Father, forgive them, he says, for they know not what they do. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm quite sure that Joseph had his moments when maybe he didn't think like that. Although I say I'm quite sure, I mean, maybe not. But he, he's a man. He's human. Elijah, we're told, was human. He was of like passions with ourselves. Well, so was Joseph. And when he lay with his feet in fetters in the dungeon, under a false accusation of trying to tempt to adultery, when he was actually innocent, when he was in that dark, damp, dank dungeon, day after day and week after week and month after month, having received what he thought were promises that God would bless him and be with him, I'm sure many a time, He thought of his brothers in a negative way. Many's a time he would have wondered when they would get their comeuppance or when their time of destruction would come. At least it's possible. Maybe even he thought sometimes of revenge. But if he did, or if he was tempted to think like that, he conquered it. And he conquered it by the grace of God, just as you can too. You know, there are sometimes when... You are so badly treated, especially by those who are supposed to be of the household of faith, that you feel that you can never be reconciled to such people again, and you have serious bitterness in your heart against them. Well, let me tell you, friends, um, that that will only hurt yourself at the end of the day, and it will hurt yourself In fact, that's not strictly accurate to say, it won't actually just hurt yourself, believe me, because your bitterness will gradually affect others too. Is there not a text in Hebrews itself, in chapter 12, which says, it tells us, it warns us against any root of bitterness springing springing up in you, and many be defiled. Now, is that not interesting? It doesn't say beware lest a root of bitterness spring up in you, defiling you. It says a root of bitterness springing up in you and many be defiled. 
our bitterness is really contagious. It brings a negative Christian witness when we cannot let go, when we cannot forget, and we carry things with us that we ought to put behind us. And really, in a way, the best evidence for Joseph forgetting the pain and the misery in his father's house is just the fact that he did love them and the fact that he must have prayed for them. You love those for whom you pray, and you pray for those whom you love. The second part of that statement is obvious. It's obvious that you will pray for those you love. It's not so obvious that you will love those for whom you pray. But again, that is true. And if you find it in your heart difficult to love some that you used to love before, pray for them. Pray for them. And you'll gradually discover the bitterness disappear and love coming in its place. And in these ways, Joseph is essentially like the saviour whom he typified in his life. Maybe one day we'll follow his life in more detail and see how at pretty much every turn he typifies the Lord Jesus Christ to come. But like I said on the cross, well, he prayed for the soldiers who nailed him to the tree. Father, he says, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It is a wonderful thing to come out of a trial without the smell of the burning on your head, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the burning, fiery furnace. His second child he called Ephraim, which means fruitful, because, he says, the Lord has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This time, the land of his affliction It's not his original homeland where he was really afflicted. It's the land of Egypt where he was afflicted too. Where he was laid in the dungeon with his feet bound fast in fetters. Psalm 105 tells us literally in the Hebrew that the iron ate into his body. The land of his affliction. Is that not interesting that the church was his land of affliction and so is the world his land of affliction. He has no doubt where he belongs. He's quite sure where he belongs, but both places can be a land of affliction. And it's a real trial when you discover affliction in the church. You expect it in the world, but strangely it will come sometimes in the household of God. But, he says, God made me fruitful. Now, when he says with his second son that God made me fruitful, he's not referring to the fact that his wife has just given birth to a second child. Or if, if he is referring to it, it's a minor point. The fruitfulness, like the forgetfulness, is a spiritual thing. Just as the forgetfulness attached to Manasseh is spiritual, so the fruitfulness attached to Ephraim is spiritual. In other words, what Joseph is saying is not only did you bring me to this land of affliction to test me, but I have become spiritually fruitful here. In the dungeon I discovered myself. I learned more about myself. I learned more about the world in which I live. And I learned more about you, my God. And I am stronger now in my forties in Egypt than I was as a young man receiving these visions from God in Canaan. Now, affliction is good for us. God knows when we need it. Half of our afflictions are because we're going astray. The other half is because we're about to go astray. We don't even realize that. Paul said that When he was given a thorn in the flesh, it was to prevent pride, which was obviously in danger of coming in and wreaking havoc. But God just laid him low to stop that happening. Now, that wouldn't be so easy to detect. You see, if you were going to to take Paul's place and you were going to examine your life at that point and say, "Well, well, why has God given me this severe affliction in my eyes? 
which Paul carried, you would find no reason. But the reason was preventative. That's why it's so difficult to find. In other words, there's always a reason. And you need to trust God for the fact that there is always a reason for the affliction coming into your portion. And one day, you'll thank him. One day, you'll thank him. And if one day you'll thank him, why not thank him now? Like I've said to you often before, if you're going to be happy tomorrow, you might as well be happy today. And if you're going to be eternally happy in glory, why be sad now? So we would say in his 40s that Joseph is in a good place. And it's good to know that we are in a good place. I've forgotten my grief and I am spiritually fruitful because I've been able to forgive and to forget. But you know, God tests that. And strangely, he tests it on his father's deathbed. And he tests it when his father asks to bless his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, in the morning, we noticed the strange way in which he blessed them, how he crossed his hands and uh, gave the blessing of primogeniture, or the firstborn, to Ephraim, and the lesser blessing to Manasseh. What we didn't notice in the morning is something that's really quite stark and quite strange. Before he blesses them at all, Jacob says something to him, which must have, must have struck Joseph like a bolt from the blue. Quite a remarkable thing. He says to him, Your sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are mine, he says. Now, you may say, well, that's essentially a way of saying that I love them just as you love them. They are my grandchildren just as they are your children. But that's not what he means. Jacob emphasizes that. He says, in the way in which Reuben, Reuben my firstborn, is mine, and Simeon, the next son, is mine, so Ephraim and Manasseh are mine. Sounds like an adoption. And in fact, he confirms it's an adoption because he says, any other children that you may have are yours, but these are mine. In other words, they will become heads of tribes in Canaan along with my ten other sons. Now that's good news to Joseph if his heart is in the right place. It's not good news to Joseph if his heart is not in the right place. What do I mean by that? Well, you've got to remember who Joseph is. A powerful figure at court, Pharaoh feels indebted to him. And if Joseph wants security for himself and for his family forever, he can just stay in Egypt. His sons stay in Egypt, and the whole world is at his feet. The alternative to that is Canaan, an uncertain land full of warring tribes. All that uncertainty for his children and his children's children, and his children's children's children, instead of the certainty, the power, the wealth, and the ambition in Egypt. It's a test, really, as to what he really wants. I mean, so many times God comes into our own lives and tests us as to what we really want. And I don't know how well we pass these tests. I don't know how well you pass them yourself. We congratulate ourselves very often on making certain renunciations when we became Christians and we practiced self-denial when we became Christians but did we continue down that path? Is it as easy still to self-deny as it was at first? Has self somehow been enthroned again once he had been knocked off the throne of your heart? Christ said that salt is good but if salt loses its flavor what is it good for, he says, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot? And he made that statement in connection with the very idea of a, a, a discipleship that had no self-denial in it. 
The Lord says that's a contradiction in terms. It's oxymoronic. You cannot have a Christianity that is not self-denying. Self-denying is at the heart of what Christianity is all about. Salt is good, but of what good is salt without any flavour? The salt they used in the Middle East was a, a compound in, in, its, in the form in which was, it was essentially found. And sometimes if it was left for a long time, it would decay and wouldn't be of any use. And it wasn't an uncommon sight to see a woman just sweep old salt out in the street where people walked in it. Why? Because there's nothing else you could do with it. It's, it's just useless. So the Lord says, is a Christianity without self-denial. The Lord doesn't want to know it. And that's so important for ourselves. I ask you and I ask myself, is the Lord still first? Really, can we put ourselves out for the Lord? On what basis do you choose the school that you send your child to? On what basis do you choose the church that you attend yourself? On what basis do your friends choose the church that they attend? On what basis do you choose a place to live in? Lot chose Sodom. Why do so few Christians choose Christian education? Have you ever stopped and asked yourself why it is? Is it something to do with money? Is it something to do with status? Is it something to do with the jobs and the careers that we want them to have? As though a Christian school would get in the way of that. It absolutely does not. But you think it may. And you make your choice. And what choice is it? Or again, why do so few Christians choose choose faithful churches to worship in? Good question. Why is it? Why are there Christians who appear in some respects to be zealous and sincere enough choose to continue in a church where the gospel is compromised? Why? Is it to do with people? Is it to do with community? Pressure? Peer pressure? Some kind of pressure? Why shouldn't Joseph say, no, I want Ephraim and Manasseh to stay in this country. They've got everything they could ever have here. They lack for nothing and their children would lack for nothing. What is there in Canaan to go to but uncertainty, warring tribes, confusion? But Joseph upset, accepts it and he arranges that all the interests of his family would be invested in that plot of land and not this one. You read these verses and you don't understand what's involved in them. When I say you, I mean myself too. We all read them. We all read them and we don't understand what's involved in them. Oh, here's Joseph and he's getting a blessing for his children. It's all very nice. It's all very costly. It's very testing and it's all very revealing. Really, in a way, he's like Moses a few years later who rejects the pleasures and the positions of Egypt and chooses to suffer affliction with God's people. That was an important point in his 40s, just as Moses was 40 when he made that choice. Sometimes we make decisions for our families at that kind of age, decisions as to what we really want for them. And they have long-standing consequences. Maybe it's only fully reaped in the grandchildren and in the great-grandchildren. After that, there's virtually nothing else said until Joseph is 110, which I've read in several different sources um, was an ideal number amongst the Egyptians. They considered it the only, the oldest age at which anyone had died, And uh, I've read it in several sources, but I I keep trying to get back to where it really comes from, and I haven't been able to. I've seen it listed somewhere, but I haven't been able to access it. So I'm just going to put that out there, that as far as I understand, it was an age esteemed by the Egyptians 
and God allowed Joseph to reach it. Of course, some people will take a critical, a kind of literary critical position, and and they will say things like, oh, well, here, this is just a myth, and he's given that age. That's not the way to look at these things. The fact is that God speaks to people in different cultures in their own way of understanding things. I mean, God spoke through astronomy to the people, to the wise men who were in Babylon. So God speaks to the Egyptians here by allowing his own man to reach the age which they esteemed. I mean, God uses our language like that to reach to us in different ways. But on his deathbed, Joseph again exercises this great faith and he says, take my body like you took my father's body, he says, and bury it in the cave of Machpelah. But this time, he says, not right away, he says. Wait, wait years, he says, until God visits you. And then you shall carry my body out of here. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, Joseph knows the word of God. And he remembers his great-grandfather's prophecy. When God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15... You'll remember that Abraham built an altar. He, he cut certain sacrificial animals in two. And he had to walk between the pieces himself. And the divine presence appeared in the form of a fiery torch. And God spoke the covenant terms to Abraham. That he would give him the land. He would give him a seed. Through his seed eventually all the families of the earth would be blessed. The curse would be reversed. Paradise lost would be paradise restored. The gates of Eden essentially opened again and a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness would dwell. And all that was beautiful, consoling. But then you'll remember that we're told in Genesis 15 that just for a time a horror of great darkness fell upon Abraham. And God spoke to him in a darker voice and he said, Know this, that your descendants shall be slaves in a land that is not theirs for 400 years. And after that time, he says, they shall come out. Joseph knows that prophecy. And Joseph is a very spiritual man, a very discerning man and a very godly man. And he knows that although the whole family are well off in the district of Goshen in Egypt, He knows that that's going to change, just like it changed for the Jews in Germany, just the way it can change for a people in another country when a fiercely nationalistic government comes in, like it did in Egypt. And they made these people slaves. Joseph knows that it's going to change. The people of God feel these things. It's a a difficult thing when when you feel a darkness, a spiritual darkness coming. That's been over ourselves for years. Um, we pray that it doesn't darken any further. I'm, the Lord's people are here tonight. They're elsewhere too around us. They're in the country. They pray that the Western world would stop plunging into darkness and that the light of God would break through again. But Joseph knows that their circumstances are going to change. And he knows that in a few years' time, His people are going to be living in mud huts. They're going to be asked to make bricks without any straw. The lash of the whip will be upon the backs. They're going to be hungry and they're going to be thirsty. He knows there's a genocide coming where all the male children are going to be thrown into the river Nile. He knows the darkness, the satanic oppression that is coming upon the people of God. And I'm sure he knows that at times like that, God's people will think, Well, what was it all? Did we ever have a great, great grandfather who was in the land of Canaan? Did he ever really get promises that there was a land of milk and honey? Did he ever get promises that that land was for us and for our children? You know, it's a really trying thing when what God appears to have said is so different from the actual reality that you're living in. It's so, so hard for faith. 
And Joseph knows that that's true. They'll also say, were the dreams that Joseph got, were they real and did they mean anything? But Joseph says to them, God will visit you. I'm sure they wondered, what do you mean? But he just didn't tell them. God will visit you. He'll come and do you good. When he brings you low, you'll pray again. That will happen to us, by the way. Before God returns, we'll start to pray again. And when you pray again, he will return. And to sustain your hope, he says, I want you to keep my bones. Keep them for nearly 300 years. He doesn't give them that figure, but he knows how long it's going to take. Keep them, he says. And when God visits you, then take my bones back with you to the land of liberation, of freedom, to the land of blessing and of plenty. And so the 40-day embalming process begins. The organs are all removed, except the heart. Even the brain is hooked out the nose. The body is filled with nitrates, carbonates, bicarbonates, sodium carbonates, sodium bicarbonates. The Egyptians, as you know, were so supremely skilled in doing these things. And then the body is wrapped in heavily spiced linen. And it's placed inside a sarcophagus. And there, for the best part of 300 years, lies Joseph's body. It's there to be seen. It's not buried temporarily, and not at all. Why? It's got to be visible. Why has it got to be visible? For hope. For hope. Because the day will come when they, they need to look at it. And when they look at it, they will remember what Joseph said, and they remember that God comes back. Our God will come back. He will return. It's not difficult to see the connection with ourselves, and especially to see it in connection with the Lord's table. A greater than Joseph came into this world to protect ourselves in famine. And he saved us. And he left us here. When, when he told the disciples that he was leaving, we're told that the disciples were distraught. They didn't understand it. They didn't expect a, a Messiah who would leave them, but a Messiah who would stay. But the Lord says, I am going. Where are you going? They say. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, he said, but you will follow me hereafter. And he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, he says, for I have overcome the world. Not only that, he says, but I will come again and I will receive you to myself so that where I am there you may be also. And until I come back, I leave you my bones. I leave you my bones and my flesh. I leave you a sacrament. A sacrament that you can see, a sacrament that you can touch, and a sacrament that you can taste. Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth that death until he comes. There are times, friends, when our faith flickers low. It does. Times when we think, He's not going to return. He's forgotten his church. Like they said in Babylon, the Lord has forgotten us and the Lord has forsaken us. But he hasn't forgotten and he hasn't forsaken. And it's interesting, so often, I find it anyway to be the case, that at the Lord's table these things become very tangible again. All his promises spring to life. Everything becomes certain again, just through his bones, his body, these memorials of the one who lived and walked amongst us and who assures us that he will do the same again. Now, friends, we look to ascend the hill of communion from 
Thursday onwards until we are at the top of it on the Lord's Day. And in the light of all we saw this morning and tonight, when we gather there, we are saying first, we are not of this world. We've had our day of that. New principles to live by. New life to live. Our people are the Lord's people. Our book is the Lord's book. Our house is the Lord's house. We are in this world. We are not of it. We live here as strangers and pilgrims passing through, and we are sustained by the very body and blood of our Lord until he visits us to bring us home. Let us pray. O Lord, we pray to live the life of the righteous, and to die the death of the righteous too, how they are to be envied. There are so many people who choose the things of the world, its riches and its popularity, its flattery and its praise, and they are willing to pay the price of their own soul for it. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, all of Egypt, but loses his own soul? Is it not far better to be on the Lord's side, enlisted under his glorious gospel banner, and alongside our comrades in arms, our brothers and sisters, adorned with the armour, of God's children. Bless us and help us to prepare in heart to come to the sacramental table. Lay it on our heart to desire to be there, to eat and to drink abundantly in the house of our beloved. For the banner over us there will be love. In Christ's name, amen. We'll uh, close our service singing in Psalm 45, the second uh, version of the psalm. I I think we sang this on Thursday or last Sabbath, but it's very fitting nonetheless for tonight as well. In verse 10, the whole of the psalm, of course, is focused on the marriage of Christ and his own bride. Unlike normal weddings, the focus is on the groom, first of all, in his glory and splendor. And then the church is directly addressed as a woman in verse 10. And she's got a sacrifice to make. We always do. We always do. O daughter, take good heed. Incline and give good ear. Thou must forget thy kindred all and father's house most dear. Now, that's because she has a spiritual choice to make. And if she makes it, then thy beauty to the king shall then delightful be. And I want us all to remember that we are never as pleasing to God as when we put him first. And do thou humbly worship him, because thy Lord is he. Notice that this has an effect on uh, unbelieving kingdoms. In fact, a kingdom like Tyre was always in hostile opposition to the Lord's people. But here, the daughter then of Tyre, there with a gift shall be. She's coming too. And all the wealthy of the land shall make their suit to thee. The daughter of the king, all glorious is within. The reference is not there to her inward beauty, but actually within the court of preparation where she is being prepared for the marriage. And with embroideries of gold, her garments wrought have been. There's a golden thread, a divine golden thread through all her clothing, which is multicolored, the grace of God. She cometh to the king in robes with needle wrought, The virgins that do follow her shall unto thee be brought. They shall be brought with joy and mirth on every side into the palace of the king. And there 
they shall abide. 10 to 15, we stand to sing.